Bienvenue à Scream Scene. Mon nom est Sarah et Ben. Merci de nous avoir écoutés aujourd'hui. Bonjour. <laughs> Welcome to Scream Scene. We're doing a film that came out of France. That's why I started it off with French. Why didn't we do that when we did our last French movie, when we did uh, Fall of the House of Usher? Because I didn't think of it. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing good. It's the end of the day, so it's not as bad, but I definitely started today with a pretty bad hangover. <laughs> but I'm doing pretty good now. How are you? I'm doing pretty good as well. Uh, we've had a pretty full week. We're sort of recording two episodes, like back to back almost, which we don't normally do, but it's because we went to Calgary Comic Expo and that took up a whole weekend uh, when we normally would have recorded this episode. So this episode and the next episode are getting recorded like one right after another practically. Practically. Yeah. And I understand we have a couple of people to thank. That's right, Sarah. Longtime listeners will know that we have a Patreon that supports the podcast at patreon.com slash podcast. And there you can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month with different rewards at the $5 and $10 levels. And uh, we've got some new patrons to thank here on the show. So here are the uh, new patrons of the night who have signed up to support the show on Patreon. We've got Ted Melnick. Thank you, Ted. And we've got Chris Freeberg. Thanks, Chris. Ted's last name is very close to a professor we had in university. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> Which is kind of neat. If you would like to join Ted and Chris in being part of the Patrons of the Night, you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. We really appreciate any and all support that we get. So whether that's, you know, sharing the show, but also through this financial avenue, it's all greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Absolutely. What are we watching this week, Ben? Well, Sarah, this week we are watching Le Golem from France. From France. The Golem in English. And it's from 1936. And its, it's provenance is a little difficult to ascertain. Okay. So it's, it's an independent French film shot on location in Prague. Mm -hmm. And my research, I've seen it called both a remake of Paul Wigner's 1920 Golem film from Germany, and I've also seen it called a sequel to Paul Wigner's film. So I'm not really sure which it is. I guess we'll, we'll probably have to see it to know for sure. Well, good thing that that's our plan. Right. I mean, given that the Golem of Prague is kind of an old folktale, it could also easily be neither. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the Paul Wigner film. Um, Wigner isn't actually mentioned in the film's credits at all. Hmm. Though it is probably fair to say that the legend would have less cachet in the film world if it wasn't for... Paul Wigner making his version. Because mm -hmm. he made a couple. Yeah, he, right? made, he like, made three Golem movies. Yeah, because um, the one that we saw is like one of the surviving ones, but that's technically a prequel to the 
one that's called De Golem that was more of a horror movie set in, like, contemporary times, right? That's right, yeah. So the the one that's actually on the list is a prequel about how the Golem was created, set in medieval times in the past. The original Golem film from 1915 was in modern times with the Golem awakening again and going on a rampage. He also made a sequel to that movie called The Golem and the Dancing Girl that was like a romantic comedy. Um... <laughs> And this film, I guess, we're back in medieval times. It's either a remake or a sequel, or it might also be sourced from uh, what's listed in the credits, which is a play called The Golem by Czech playwrights Jiži Voskovitz and Jan Verich. So that whether that play has anything to do with the Wigner films or not, I don't know. We're just going to have to watch it and find out. Yeah, since we're back in this sort of territory, it might be good to remind listeners just what the Golem of Prague is all about. Yeah. So we first covered Der Golem in episode 8. It's titled, Jews Aren't Magic, Paul, because Paul Wigner made them look like wizards. And the film is currently ranked number 49. Mm-hmm. God, episode 8, that was a while back, huh? But it also only feels like yesterday. That's when you go, aww. Aw. Thank you. And that film depicts medieval Prague and Rabbi Leib. To defend the Jewish ghetto from the king's decree to make them leave, Rabbi Leib creates the golem to protect the ghetto. Leib takes the golem to the Prague king to kind of show him off um, and, you know, try to convince the king to let the Jews stay. And due to the crowd kind of laughing at Jewish folktales being shown, the castle's about to collapse and the golem saves everyone. It stops the palace from crumbling. Uh, So the king pardons all Jews. However, this very dandy knight had been sent to the ghetto to deliver the news and he started getting a little too buddy-buddy with the rabbi's daughter. So after the golem saves... The king and the Jews are now pardoned. Rabbi Leib has been noticing that the golem is being a bit more erratic, and reading the stars, he sees that uh, Astaroth is coming into power or something and is influencing the golem. So the golem can't really be trusted at this point in time, so he, like, takes the batteries out, basically. The golem is powered by this, what's called a shem. It's just, um special words written on a parchment that is put into him, and through the power of those words, he comes to life. Rabbi Leib doesn't share this news of the golem's erratic behavior with anyone, so when his apprentice walks in on the night in bed with the rabbi's daughter, the apprentice turns the golem on to be like, get this guy out of the house, and then the golem rampages the town. It's definitely a monster movie, and that's kind of why we have it on the list. But outside of that, we had a long discussion in episode 8 about how it wasn't really a horror movie. We gave it a lot of leeway because it was a prequel to an actual horror movie that was lost. So mm-hmm. we couldn't actually see it. And it was also very early on in the development of the genre. And a lot of the genre signifiers hadn't quite been codified yet. For sure. Like, it has the German expressionist built town. Um even with German Expressionism being very much in its infancy. This is only from 1920. 
But that's that kind of gives you an idea of what the movie's about and where we were coming at with ranking it. We also criticized this film for fetishizing Jewish iconography and kind of conflating Judaism with wizardry. We had a, a cool part of the discussion about how, you know, Paul Wegner isn't like the only one who's been like conflating that iconography with wizardry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a long history of that. But we, we definitely criticize this film for that. But Paul Wegner also kept pretty close to the original myth of the golem in that film. Uh, so we did kind of praise him for that. Yeah, because the, the story that you just sort of outlined is the story of the the film, and the film itself was based on this long-standing myth that also had some basis in real history as well. Yeah, because Rabbi Leib was a real guy. Now, as far as him making the golem or not, that's the mythical part. Um, there have been several people in history that have people have argued could be the maker of the golem. Mm. Rabbi Leib is just one of them. And the, the, the king that he sort of takes the, the golem to, like, that's based on a real historical person. And we talked a bit about that in that episode, too, like what the context of that history was and that point in time in Czechoslovakia's history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The general myth of the golem is the idea of a clay anthropomorphic being who is unable to speak... That's like a key thing that's throughout all of the versions of these myths. Um, who is built by someone, in the case of this uh, of this particular version of the myth, by Rabbi Yehuda Leib ben Betzalel, to protect Jews from persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, Rabbi Leib was a real guy. He was a Torah scholar and was a huge influence on 16th century Jewish philosophy. But, like, the earliest documented mention of the golem, I guess you could say, is from the 1550s with Rabbi Eliyahu. Well, it's sort of interesting to see how the golem myth and this particular rabbi end up getting joined simply because, I guess, this rabbi is particularly well-known and famous, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be him for the story to work, but he's a famous rabbi of the past that people would know, right? Totally, yeah. It's like, it's like linking, uh, when they link Robin Hood to Richard the Lionheart. There's nothing really specific about that era that it needs to be that era, but that's a era in English history that everybody is vaguely familiar enough with that if you say, oh, it's back in this time, people know what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, um, in all variations of the myth, the golem is mute and... His consciousness, I guess, Mm. the fact that he comes to life, is a result of this capsule with magic words, the Shem, giving it power. Mm -hmm. In that previous episode, we did talk a lot about Prague in the 16th century, why the film is kind of set there, and I think it's interesting to note again in this episode because this film, Le Golem, was filmed there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whereas the the Wigner version was you know, this very artificial expressionist set. Yeah, definitely. Which is sort of ironic because Wigner's version of Student of Prague was filmed on location in Prague, which is how Wigner learned about the golem in the first place. (laughs) Prague is very notable with its ties to Jewish history. 
the Jewish ghetto in Prague in the 16th century was considered the center for Jewish mysticism. And part of the reason why that ghetto in particular was able to become that center to really flourish was because the kings at the time, consecutively Maximilian II and Rudolf II, allowed the ghetto to be largely independent and kind of left alone. They were like, yeah, we don't like Jews, but they're over there, so they're minding their own business, we'll mind ours. This ended when Empress Maria Theresa came into power, uh, and she expelled all the Jews from that ghetto. But there's been no point in Prague's history, actually, where Jews have not been there and mm. had communities there. Contemporary to this French film, the Nazi Germany occupation of Czechoslovakia won't happen for another couple of years. Yeah, that's 1938 that they kind of roll in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there are fears of it already. Um, fears of Nazi German aggression were throughout Czechoslovakia since Hitler came to power in 1933. Mm -hmm. Of the other Baltic countries who kind of formed out of the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1918, Czechoslovakia is pretty stable. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not, like, solid, but compared to its siblings, you could sure. say, it's like the most stable of all. Sure. You know, it's it, it's going to community college while everyone else is, like, <laughs> working at McDonald's, you Sure, know? okay. Despite that stability, like I said, that fear of Nazi German aggression is there, but also because that nationalist rhetoric and movement growing in Germany. Because in Czechoslovakia, there's a huge German minority yeah. in there. And when Hitler came to power, this German minority began uh, demanding more representation in kind of a spectrum from more representation in the government to the other end of that spectrum being actual independence. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of these Baltic states, there's a multi-ethnic population, but in Czechoslovakia in the 1930s, the population was about 68% Czechoslovaks, which is already, like, two ethnic... Yeah, that's two different ethnic groups. Yeah. 22% um, Germans, and then the rest of the ethnicities are, like, 5% or less, with Jews at 2.5%. Right. And, I mean, it was that large German minority that was sort of Hitler's um, excuse for invading, basically, and the reason why no one in the international community even really did anything about invading Czechoslovakia. Like, World War II doesn't start until he invades Poland... Mm -hmm. uh, because then there wasn't really, like, people didn't buy the excuse as much by then. Yeah. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, 2.5% of the population are Jews. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. But it's also quite a lot if you, like, count how many people that is. For sure. And by and large, they were centered in Prague. And because of that tie to Prague... Um, Prague is always mentioned with these myths of the golem. Even going so far as um, uh, one golem myth describing the golem being stored in what's called the Old New Synagogue in Prague, uh, which is the oldest active synagogue, mm -hmm. to be stored and then used again, you know. And then there's another myth where a Nazi goes to the synagogue's attic 
finds the golem and because he doesn't really know what it is, he just like stabs it because he thinks it's a person and instead of something happening to the golem, the Nazi dies mm-hmm. with like kind of a stab. Sure. A little bit of that student of Prague right, right. thing going yeah. on. Um, that's the most recent iteration of this myth. Uh-huh. But if listeners want to learn more about what the tumultuous history of these Baltic states looks like, we actually kind of covered it in relative detail in episode 45 on the Black Cat from 1934. That's right. Yeah, so go take a listen to that if you want to hear more about that. But that kind of gives you context for where Prague is at when this film is being filmed. That's right. So, um, as I said, this film most likely seems to be based on the work of two Czech playwrights, Yizhi Voskovets and Jan Verich. They were both born in 1905, and they met at law school in Prague. And at the age of 22, they left law school to join the theater. And at the age of 24, they had their own theater company. It was I picture these two guys as, like, childhood friends who are like, you want to be a lawyer? Yeah, I do. And then they go do that. And then they're like, you want to be a theater person? Yeah, I do. And then they go and do that. Sure. Um, their company was called the Liberated Theater of Voskovets and Verich. Initially, it was a clowning theater that focused on laughter and fantasy. But their work became progressively more left-wing and anti-fascist as the situation in Germany worsened. Mm-hmm. Eventually, in 1938, their theater was closed by the Nazis and they fled to America. Both of them became actors, with Voskovitz famously appearing as one of the Twelve Angry Men in that film. Nice. Uh, while Verich was the original actor cast as Ernst Stavro Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, before he was replaced several weeks into shooting by Donald Pleasance. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. Just a little interesting bit of trivia there for you. Uh, Their 1931 play, The Golem, is cited in the credits as the basis for this film. Mm Mm-hmm. The adaptation to film was done by the movie's director, Julien Duvivier, and his mentor, André Antoine. Born in 1858, André Antoine founded the Théâtre Libre in Paris in 1887, which was a workshop theater that focused on producing new works regardless of box office potential. Uh, So they were sort of all about you know, is this a new idea, not an old favorite, something that's just starting out and something that maybe you couldn't get made at any other theater. Antoine promoted a more naturalistic style of acting than was common at the time, which proved hugely influential, earning him the title of the father of modern mise-en-scene in France. Nice. He produced plays until 1914 when he was forced to leave the theater due to debt. He began directing films and applied his theories of naturalism there as well, earning a reputation for bringing nobility to French film. (laughs) Uh, He did this until 1922 when he transitioned into being a theater and film critic in the final stage of his career. It was under Antoine's theatrical direction that Julien Duvivier's career began as an actor. 
Uh, when Antoine moved on to film, Duvivier moved with him, working as a writer. In the 1930s, Duvivier began directing as part of the Film d'Art Collective, developing a style called poetic realism, <laughs> alongside other directors of the period, notably Jean Renoir. This style is a kind of realism that still allows for stylized aesthetic, rather than sort of straight docudrama-esque social realism. Okay. So the idea is you want to have realistic dialogue, realistic acting styles, you know, have the sets and everything look realistic, but you can still have, like, fancy lighting, and you can still do, like, Dutch angles, and you can still have, like, cinematic technique going on, as opposed to, like, you know, those kind of movies that just try to look like their documentaries, almost. Okay, cool. Duvivier's first big success was also his first talkie, uh, which also happened to be the first talkie of actor Ari Bauer, um, who plays Rudolph II in this film. So despite working in French with a French cast, Duvivier brought the production to Prague to shoot on location. Uh, Once there, he employed a local Czech crew, including a Czech editor, Czech composer, and Czech cinematographers. So this new version of The Golem opened on February 19th, 1936, in France and Czechoslovakia, and opened the next year in Britain, with 12 minutes cut out of it, and then the next year after that in the U.S., with 25 minutes cut out of it. Out of the original? Or yeah, out, out of, of the, the original. British? Out of the original. Okay. Yeah. Duvivier would find his films politically blocked during the Nazi occupation of France, and would leave the country for the United States in 1940, making five films in Hollywood before returning to France after the war, passing away in 1967 in a traffic accident. Oh no. Actor Ari Bauer stayed in France during the occupation, and continued to work. In 1942, his Jewish wife was arrested by the Gestapo. Bauer's attempts to get her released would lead to his own arrest and torture under accusations of being Jewish. Uh, Bauer was not, but they did find out that he was a Freemason, which was another group targeted by Nazi concentration camps. Uh, About 80 to 200,000 Freemasons were killed in concentration camps. Uh, Bauer was released from custody in April of 1943, but died six days later uh, from his ordeal. Wow. Well, how are we going to watch this film? Le Gullum is in the public domain because it was made by, like, an art collective. (laughs) Um, It's on YouTube, and it's going to be yet another experience in auto-Google translated subtitles for you and me. Well... So it's on the Scream Scene playlist. Okay. If listeners would like to watch along, you can find our... Scream Scene YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Otherwise, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching Le Golem from 1936. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is... Dark Side Drive. Dark Side Drive. 
Darkside Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, all 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Darkside Drive. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Le Gullum from 1936. And uh, before we go any further, Sarah, not a horror movie? No. Not a um, horror movie. Like historical drama, maybe? Yeah, that's probably the closest thing you could say. It's like a historical drama with like a superhero at the very end. Yeah. Like if you were watching an Elizabethan movie and Superman showed up in the last ten minutes. Well, I wouldn't really say Superman, but someone to, you know, kill the rich at the end of the day? Okay. Yeah, no, yeah, Superman. He's got a cape, he busts through walls, he beats up, like, rich people. He has a cloak. Okay. So... He doesn't fly, he doesn't <laughs> smile. Sure. He has lions. What? These lions follow him? Oh, he has lions. I thought you said he is lions, and I got very confused. Oh, no, I, I just missed misspoke. It is cool the way that lions are featured because Rabbi Leib, his name Yehuda Leib Ben Betzalel, mm -hmm. his full name, is associated with lions. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. When we watched the original Der Golem, we said, this is not a horror movie. It is a monster movie. We're going to count it as horror because of like when it's coming out and all these other things. Then we get to Ludgolum and it's Definitely not a horror movie, and barely even what I would call a monster movie. Like, it really is just more a historical drama. Yeah, but why don't you give us the summary so um, we can kind of talk in more detail? For sure. So, it's the year 1610. Rabbi Leib is dead. Um, if you wanted to relate this movie to the Wigner film, it would be probably most accurate to call it a sequel, because it's taking place after, but it's really, like, its own thing. The Golem has like a different design, and, you know, it's, it's its own thing. So the Jews in the Prague ghetto are more oppressed than ever, and they want Leib's successor, Rabbi Jacob, to reactivate the golem. Uh, but he refuses, saying that they have to wait until the time is right, otherwise the golem will go berserk. We'll attack them instead. Mm -hmm. So they pray for a sign to know when the time is right, and the answer is that the golem will awaken when the beast roars. Meanwhile, Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II has gone mad with paranoia after the betrayal of his brother, Archduke Matthias of Austria. And if you want to talk about what this movie is mostly about in terms of, like, what it devotes running time to, it's this. It's um, Rudolf II sort of going mad with delusions of paranoia uh, more and more and more over the course of the film to the point where, you know, he clearly can't be an effective ruler anymore. That's really what this movie's about. Um, the Emperor's Chancellor is manipulating him, uh, mostly to try and get him to marry uh, Isabel of Spain, uh, which angers the Emperor's mistress, 
Katharina Strada. The Emperor believes that he needs the Golem of Prague to protect him from his enemies, so both the Chancellor and Strada enact various schemes to get the Golem or else discover the means to control the Golem. That takes up a majority of the movie, these sort of various schemes to try and do this. Uh, at one point, Rabbi Yaakov is arrested. He refuses to give up the secret to controlling the golem. Sometime after that, the Jewish religious leaders are all rounded up and arrested, including Rabbi Yaakov, and they are sentenced to hanging on charges of witchcraft. However, Yaakov's wife, Rachel, does know the secret to activating the golem, so she sneaks into the palace dungeon where the emperor is keeping the golem chained up next to the lions. When the lions roar, she knows that it is time, and she activates the golem by writing emet, which is a Hebrew word meaning real or true, on its forehead. This occurs an hour and 15 minutes into this hour and a half movie. The golem then goes on a rampage, it frees the Jews, it destroys the palace, it kills the chancellor, etc. When it reaches the ghetto, Jacob turns it off by erasing the first letter on its forehead to spell met, which means dead. The Jews know that they are going to be safe from oppression now because Archduke Matthias' army rides into the city to depose Rudolph. The end. I mean, I feel like it was difficult to follow this movie because we had a movie in French with Google auto-translating it to English, mm -hmm. and there would be times where it would say that it would claim a character was saying motorcycles or right. something like that. Yeah, it wasn't doing a great job. Yeah, so it was hard to follow with that. But, like, even just trying to watch what's going on screen and infer, it was very convoluted. It was mostly, like, this was mostly, like, a, a royal court drama. Like, really what this movie was about was the ins and outs of these different factions of the court playing against one another in different various ways, and the, the MacGuffin of the movie is the golem. Yeah, totally. I was, I was very disappointed. I wanted to see what a French person's take on a Jewish myth would be, especially with so many people from Czechoslovakia involved in the making of the film, mm -hmm. as you outlined in the beginning. So I, I, was, I was really disappointed. I have a few positive things to say about this movie. Okay. Um, so I think this movie is interesting to parallel with the Nazi persecution of the Jews that was happening in the 30s. In, you know, very obvious ways. There's, there's scenes in this movie where, you know, the Prague soldiers put up, like, proclamations in the ghetto. And they, they ride horses through the streets, pulling people away and arresting people in the night. And terrorizing the Jews and stuff. And I think that would be pretty powerful stuff in 1936. Um, there's the fact that the person sort of oppressing them is this, like, this autocratic dictator who's depicted very pointedly as being insane and not, you know, not rational, not reasonable. So I think there's a level where in 1936, based on what people knew in 1936, you could read this as a anti-Hitler, pro-Jew allegory, or, or at least sympathetic to the Jewish cause. Mm -hmm. Speaking of sympathy... I liked that in this movie, the Jewish characters were treated as people. 
Rather they, than just as wizards? Well, they weren't fetishized the way that they were in Vigner's film. Like, you got this sense in Vigner's work that he was interested in Judaism, that he maybe, like, even respected Judaism, but he still viewed it as an other and this, like, thing that was kind of neat to make into a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and, whereas Judaism here just appears as a religion. Uh, the Jewish characters here are just people. And their plight is very sympathetically portrayed. You know, how the, there's a, a an effective scene that's about, you know, a bunch of Jewish people who are wanting to leave Prague. And they have to wait all night for the gates to open because the gates close at seven o'clock and you know, they're on a curfew and stuff. And you see all these poor people sort of just lying in the streets. Yeah. You see, um, images of torture, Mm -hmm. like Jacob in particular, uh, we see him getting on like that stretch machine, the rack, the rack stretch machine. But there's also obviously not real because it's a movie, but whippings, lashes Mm -hmm. going on. I also thought that, like, in general, this movie has really good production value. Uh, For sure. You know, really good sets, costumes, really good cinematography in a lot of parts, I, I thought at least. Um, I thought the golem's makeup was pretty cool. Yeah, when he awakens, um, the lighting on his face is done really effectively. And there's, like, a really neat effect when he sort of crumbles, where they literally cut up and crumbled the frame of film that he was on which was a really neat uh, effect. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, I think that this is probably a good movie. Honestly, it's just not a horror movie, and if you went into it with certain expectations or certain things you wanted to get out of it, like we did, then it's not a good movie. Like, then it's a disappointing movie, yeah. right? Yeah, it's not a wolf blood situation where we went in expecting werewolves, and they didn't deliver that, and they delivered a poor movie. Mm-hmm. This is, we went in expecting a rampaging golem. We did kind of get that. Yeah, but... like the last 15 minutes of the movie is cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the rest of it was like a fairly good movie, but it was definitely more of a period melodrama. Even down to the production value that you mentioned with like the costumes, the amount of extras. Yeah. There's like horses and lions in this. You see lions attacking people, which like... The way it's done, you know that it's just, like, the trainer or something. No one's actually getting hurt. But, like, it's not like a murder in the zoo situation of, like, these animals attacking. But this film had money behind it. Yeah, it has a feel of, you know, what a contemporary Hollywood costume drama would feel like. Yeah. Right? It's just very hard to enjoy a movie that's all about backstabbing court intrigue when you don't speak the language the movie's in, and the subtitles are doing a subpar job. Like, it was still enough to get the gist across, but, like, I might have just been able to get the gist from just listening without any subtitles, you know? Yeah. I was surprised how much production value was behind this film, given that it was made by an art collective. Yeah. I will say it was kind of neat how the design of the ghetto in the first golem, mm-hmm. um, where it was kind of expressionist and, like, weird-shaped buildings and stuff. That was kind of replicated here. Yeah, it looked similar to me. Yeah, so similar enough that I was wondering if they even had access to the same sets, which I, no. I highly doubt. So it also makes me wonder, is that just how these ghettos looked? Well, I think I think what we saw in the 1920 version was... 
you know, that was a set and it was exaggerated for expressionist purposes. But I think the distinctive thing that you see in both, because I think this version's a little more realistic, is how squashed in everything is. Squashed, windy, almost like a funhouse mirror effect with some of the chimneys. Yeah, it's it, it's sort of, you get the impression of it's a lot of city being squeezed into a very small area, which makes sense. Yeah, totally. I thought the golem's rampage was good. Like, he, he, like, it's very he, out he of... He burst through walls like he was the Kool-Aid man. Yeah, like, it's very, if you've seen the 1950s George Reeves Superman, it's very that. He, he bursts through walls, he bends iron bars to, like, free people <laughs> from cages. There is that, I, I, I know you, you kind of mentioned it before, but I just, Probably my favorite shot in the movie is um, he, like, walks into this room full of guards and they start kind of running away and then all these lions come in from behind the golem and, like, sweep past him into the room or something. Yeah. I know, it was cool. Yeah, at one point, instead of using the doors, which are right there, he just crashes in on the side. Which I swear to God, that's like a, a joke in Superman 2 or something. Yeah. Like someone coming in right beside the door. Yeah. <sighs> So, right. if you're going to see this movie, see the last 15 minutes. Find it on our YouTube playlist. Go to uh, an hour and 14 and watch from there. That's really all you need. Yeah. The horror movies that we've seen from France yeah. have been Fall of the House of Usher, sort of vampire. Right. Vampire was sort of half French. And half German. Yeah. And now Le Golem. And I'm curious... I don't know a whole lot off the top of my head about French cinema, where it's at, or even French horror, but I know you know a lot of stuff about random things. <laughs> um, why do you think we haven't seen a whole lot of horror out of France? Um, you know, I'm not 100% sure. I do know that the style in France uh, for their cinema at the time uh, was this poetic realism style, which became the major style in the 30s after French Impressionism kind of died off. Oh yeah, we talked about that in our show. Yeah. It's funny because stuff like Hunchback of Notre Dame or The Phantom of the Opera, those are French stories that got adapted by Hollywood into horror-ish movies. Uh, same with uh, The Man Who Laughs. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard for me to think of like any big French you know, horror stories, horror elements... I'm not really sure why that is, like why it's Germanic cultures that are producing the majority of it right now. Um, we have, of course, talked about several times that like the genre was not popular and kind of on its way out financially at this point. You know, so we're still seeing a bit of it from Hollywood because Hollywood has to crank out 600 movies a year. These other cinemas that are maybe, you know, maybe French cinema is only making 30 to 70 movies a year. Well, then you're probably only going to get like top-notch dramas or nationalist, you know, cultural products as opposed to quickie, let's make a buck by thrilling some people horror movies, right? I think the economics don't really support it. We've also talked a lot about how these other countries want to distinguish themselves from the Hollywood films that they are importing, mm -hmm. so they make their own movies different yeah. from that. Like with Germany, we've kind of seen it with German expressionism, um, but with other markets like even with the uk it's just we're not gonna make them yeah pretty much yeah but yeah so this movie will not be going on the list mm -hmm. if you do want to take a look at that list you can go to scream scene podcast .com. 
That's also where you'll find the YouTube playlist if you do want to watch the last 15 minutes of this film. You'll find an appeals box where you can submit appeals. If you watch the whole movie and you're like, ride or die, this is a horror movie, please let us know and hear your argument. Um, if you don't want to submit through Tumblr, you can also contact us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. One of the things that you can do to help out the show is by leaving a rating or a review on any one of those platforms, because it really helps other people see the show and notice the show. Another great way that you can help us out is by telling a friend about us. Uh, word of mouth is probably the most effective way for podcast audiences to grow, so if you know anyone who's interested in the history of cinema, the horror genre, weird cultural analysis, uh, let them know and tell them to check us out. Another way that you can support us, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is through our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to bonus audio that's been cut from previous episodes, whether that's bloopers, tangents, long stretches of analysis and trivia we just didn't have time for. It's all good. Uh, and at the $10 level, patrons get access to monthly horror short stories written by me. By moi. Right. Well, not moi. Moi. Yes. Right. We. Oui. Okay. I'm not doing this joke. <laughs> um, if we hit $150 a month, we're going to start doing extra episodes each month. Uh, so an extra special episode each month covering horror-adjacent movies, which is kind of what this was. Yeah, adjacent in the sense that it was like a sequel to a horror movie. Right. Yeah. Or rather a sequel to a movie that was a prequel to a horror movie. Yes. That's adjacent-adjacent. Yes. Either way, check us out at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, I'm really excited about next week's movie, which we are watching tomorrow because of the way that we're recording these episodes. Yeah. But it's, uh, uh, we're back to America, and it's a Warner Brothers horror movie, which we have not seen one of those in a while. I think the last one was Mystery of the Wax Museum. That's right. It's directed by Michael Curtiz. Oh, good. It stars Boris Karloff. Okay. It's 1936's The Walking Dead. I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies. It kind of sucks that it shares its title with, like, a super popular TV show and comic book series right now, because it makes it really hard to... Find it? Yes. <laughs> uh, but we just picked it up on DVD from Comic Expo, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. Well, stay tuned for next week, Creatures of the Night. We'll have a real horror movie. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.